1: Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar.
2: And I'm Tom Knezik. Welcome to episode 82. And we've and
1: already been sidetracked before we yes, even started yes. recording.
2: <laughs> so it's good. We got it out of the way so we don't have to get sidetracked
1: now. Oh, we're getting but, sidetracked.
2: But on our last, um, or I guess it was episode 80, not our last episode, but yeah. episode 80, we talked about green roofs yes and uh how to use native plants in those capacities well there's other types of green infrastructure that are a little bit unique and almost like cutting edge technology you think native plants have been around forever but there's cutting edge technology that's going into to utilizing these plants in green infrastructure
1: yeah and you know the funny thing is we deal with it our plants help supply these things and i'm aware of the technology but i really don't know the ins and outs of it. Like I know of it, I know basic applications, but I, I should probably know more considering how much of our material gets used for this. And, and, and some of these are so cutting edge and we've seen so many different variants of the moving forward that they're becoming more and more, you, you, there's a big difference in how often these things we see now than we did five years ago. Yeah,
2: definitely. And that's important because- uh, we've mentioned before, we're running out of space, so it's time to get creative, and that's where rooftops come into play. That's yeah. what used to be impervious surface. We can make it so it actually has a, a benefit using native plants. Um, and there's another area, and that's on top of the water that we can use native plants. So that's where we're going to get into our guest, and, uh, and I'm going to introduce Jack. Thumb over my my the first callpansky did I did I get it okay All right. All right. Sure. <laughs> I, I like it I, I am notorious for mispronouncing even the like the easiest of last names so which is interesting because I don't have an easy pronounced last name either
1: no but. your your last name gets when when people call that don't know you your last name gets mispronounced I don't know that I've ever had anyone pronounce it correctly on the first try.
2: Well, it defies the English language, so yeah. that's,
1: that's why. <laughs> that's always great for a name, isn't it? Yeah.
2: But, but I Jack, can totally appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, right. Jack, why don't you go into more depth than I will about introducing yourself and telling us a little about who you work for.
0: So I am Jack Sispansky. I am with uh, Princeton Hydro. I'm a senior project manager and senior aquatic ecologist uh, with the aquatics division. Uh, we do a lot with pond and lake management, water quality improvements. Uh, um, we do a lot of great work with water resources. Um, but my company also does a lot of, um, everything from design to an implementation of engineering as well. So not just trying to clean up the water within the water, but also to, um, take things further and, um, Build things uh, and do engineering to do ecological uplift
1: um, at the water's edge and above in the watershed as well. There, I know there's other companies out there that do this, but I, I think it's pretty unique. Princeton Hydra is a pretty unique company in that that's what the focus is and and how in depth. It is like I said. There's other people that dabble in it. Maybe there's other people that do it as well. But I don't know that there's anyone that kind of does it the way that Princeton Hydro does it. Um, and and obviously we've had a relationship uh, for for going back quite a while. But can for for our listeners that don't know who Princeton Hydro is, can you tell us a little bit about that prince the the history of Princeton Hydro?
0: Yeah, sure. So so. Um... I'd say a little over 20 years ago, because we just, we just hit our 20 year mark. Um, I I feel like I should know this about a year or so ago. It, pandemic has kind of met, kind of turned oh, me
1: into yeah, totally. being
0: in a time warp at this point. Um, but about 20 years ago, uh, Mark Gallagher, Jeff Gall and Steve Souza they um, they started a company that was focused on management and restoration of water resources. Now uh, they They were employed by a small company called Coastal Environmental Services, uh, and it ended up getting bought out by a larger company. And they weren't really into that big company. They didn't fit into that big company mold. If you've ever met any of these gentlemen, Mm -hmm. you would understand. Um, And most of the rest of my colleagues in my company, yeah, we don't fit into that big company mold. Um, But uh, so they decided to kind of uh, start a company with a mission that was a little bit more true to the environmental roots and consistent with their moral compass. Um, and they founded Princeton hydro uh, the company started growing and uh, eventually um, the main office that was in central New Jersey, initially in Lambertville, then moved to Ringo's because we needed more space and, um, an office opened in Eastern Pennsylvania and Exton. Uh, there's now an office in Connecticut as well. And in Maryland, um, and in South Jersey as well, um, down in like, um, the Turnersville area, Sicklerville. Um, and so we, you know, there was a lot of work to be done in terms of, again, like I said, water quality improvement, uh, review of, uh, engineering to make sure it was environmentally sound, um, being able to help out um, doing things like wetland delineations and understanding environmental impacts of uh, developments. Uh, And then that just kind of expanded from there. And we've done a lot with helping not just private landowners, but also with um, uh, environmental commissions, um, municipal governments, state governments, uh, and even we we do a lot of work with federal government uh, projects as well, Uh, Big groups like the Nature Conservancy, all the way down to, uh, you know, like I said, little municipal environmental commissions to help them uh, maybe retrofit a, a stormwater basin.
1: Awesome. I, you know, I know we deal with Princeton Hydro directly sometimes, but it's amazing to me how many projects we're involved in. That we find out later was a Princeton Hydro project. Even though we didn't deal with you directly, it's like, oh, I, I had no idea we we were dealing with this person, and and all of a sudden they mentioned Princeton Hydro, and it's that comes up more often than than I can count, probably. Yeah. Which is, it's it's pretty cool to have your thumbprint on so many different things and and projects in, in the area.
0: Yeah, I I like that as well. I'm I definitely I, I felt I, so. I've been with the company for about four years now. And um, I had briefly heard about Princeton Hydro in some of my other capacities, but then, as you know, kind of working with Princeton Hydro and then going to like conferences or meetings or something and meeting somebody or seeing somebody that I that I had worked with, said,
1: oh, we know Princeton Hydro, oh yeah, I'm like, oh wow, okay, <laughs> awesome. And and how did you wind up at Princeton Hydro? So I was working with
0: the uh, us federal government in Cape May national wildlife refuge as a hurricane Sandy restoration biologist. Oh. And I think I may have actually met you when I was working with them before I came to Princeton hydro at the partnership for Delaware estuaries, environmental summit. Uh, I yes. And I, I think because the, that refuge in particular does, you know, get plans for restoration work from you guys. Um, And, you know, has a fantastic relationship, you know, um, I had so to take a couple steps back. I had been teaching with uh, a private school out in the Hamptons. I was teaching uh, marine ecology. And right out of college, uh, right out of grad school, I just got my doctorate and um, actually gotten in touch with Steve Souza. And he said, you know what? Get a little bit more uh, experience. Before you come to our company, we would like to see yeah, – I, I mentioned to him that I was like, oh, I see you're looking for a wetland ecologist. I do wetland work. He um, said, so, you know, I, I, I like your credentials, but I think you need more experience. I went to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and was a project manager on a couple of restoration projects um, that were funded by Hurricane Sandy funding, and that got me a lot more um, – acclimated to working with contractors, consultants, and um, managing larger projects like that. And so um, a couple of years into my term with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, funding ended up getting exhausted a little bit sooner than they anticipated. And it just worked out that Princeton Hydro was still looking for somebody at that time. And I had the experience that they were looking for, and I needed the you know position. And it just... Seem to work out really really well
1: it, that's great it, it's amazing the amount of good that comes out of tragedy like you you mentioned hurricane sandy and you know it's it's weird for us that a lot of our business is based on tragedy it's it's someone did something mm. they shouldn't have done or a natural uh disaster like hurricane sandy or
2: well and i, I think a lot of it's just the realization that well, we probably should have done this a long time ago yeah and um it's writing the wrongs. It's, it's yeah. easy to to know that you need home insurance after you have something that happens <laughs> whereas yeah. then you aren't covered. And this was a similar situation with Hurricane Sandy where we realized that our coastlines weren't covered and it was like, oh, we got to invest in this. Yeah. But the really smart people were doing that when it wasn't but, in vogue.
1: But it's amazing what, what comes out of it, the work that gets done – like you realize, oh, our infrastructure is not great. We need to, you know, this may be once in a hundred years, but look at the damage it caused. We need to make sure the next time this doesn't happen, or the technology that comes out of it, or uh, just the way of thinking of we need to do this. How are we going to do it? Um, it, it? It's just, you know, it's it's to me, it's amazing for how horrible of an event that was, the great things that came out of it as as we've progressed. Um, because you know, it just makes you think a little bit differently or make you makes you think a different way about what needs to get done and how it needs to get done. Um, but speaking of which, like projects, I know we're going to you know we want to talk about floating wetland islands and and technology of of getting things done the how to get done. but what are some of the other projects I know you you kind of briefly mentioned it that that Princeton Hydro gets involved with other than floating wetland islands
0: right. so we do design we do permitting we do the implementation as well of um upgrading stormwater management systems um we do wetland and stream restorations uh one of the big ones i'm starting to try to uh get a little bit more involved with uh our dam removals we are we have a really great group that has done a number of dam removals throughout new jersey connecticut mm-hmm. uh some pennsylvania new york um and that has been actually really, really good for uh, the fish community and um, fish passage. That's aquatic connectivity. And it's one of the things in my backgrounds, because a lot of um, my education and some of my training is involved with um, fish biology. And so that's kind of, I haven't been able to really um, kind of merge. That yet with the folks in our company that does, do the dam removals, but I'm starting to try to really um, get that kind of get involved with that. But but our company does a really great job with all that. Um, we've uh, assisted with uh, sediment dredging, so you know, taking a lake or a pond, or a water body that uh, needs a little bit more depth, and removing accumulated sediment that's coming from outside the watershed in. And kind of over time, filling it up. That um, the accumulation of sediment tends to um, it, it has negative impacts uh, when it comes to dissolved oxygen levels, uh, the amount of space for habitat, and stuff like that. So um, that's particularly important. But we also um, it's something that that isn't necessarily it's not one of our main uh, so. Yeah, take that part out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, co- coastal protection. Coastal work is something we're really getting into. We've we've had a number of projects that work with taking um, gray, hard infrastructure and turning it a little bit more green, like living shorelines okay. is a big deal. That's, that's some of this green infrastructure we're talking about. Um, connecting floodplains back to their original um, uh Connectivity, you know, they, they had been cut off at some point or another by some sort of barrier and, you know, reconnecting them so that um, there's more of a natural progression across seasons um, between, you know, a dry time of the year and a wet time of the year for the different plant communities uh, and being able to to have the right kind of habitat because of where it is in the water course. Um, <clears throat> But again, yeah, we, we like to be able to do things that um, turn things a little bit more naturalized um, and going more towards the green infrastructure into things uh, to, to address climate
1: resilience. Awesome. Um, yeah. Tom, I'm, I'm going to sidetrack us I, I swear, because I have a question and I don't know where it's it okay, fits. It's okay because I was going to do it. Too. All right. I, I don't know where it fits. But before we get into the meat of what we want to talk about, in your. In not experience, but in your tenure, what's the worst case scenario project that you've seen that has been restored? Like, what, 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 what was the one project you stepped on and were like, "I can't believe this is that bad," or was allowed to get this bad? And I'm proud that we're getting to to fix this.
0: That you know, that's a really good question because uh, I'll tell you what I'm—I don't feel like I've been um, a part of some of the more engineering heavy projects that dealt with that. Now okay. there are a number of projects that I know that we've done, um, that involve again, increasing aquatic t- connectivity, taking down a dam. Uh, yeah. there's, there's a number of dams on the Musconetcon river. And th- you know, those are the ones that, um, I think that I, I had touched a little bit, done a little bit of some of the, the, the monitoring of, uh, some of the aquatic species like the invertebrates and the macroinvertebrates and some of the fish. And uh I, I was able to, to get my hands on that a little bit. Um, but seeing the improvement after the dam has been removed, seeing what it looks like beforehand from some of the pictures, um, and it's just remarkable. Um, knowing that prior to our involvement. The Muskingum River had not seen American shad for over 250 years. Wow! Uh, because of the dams, and knowing that soon after some of our dam removal, um, folks were catching American shad hmm. in the Muskingum River. So th- that that one, especially as as a you know somebody who has a background in fish biology, that was really something. Like I said, I I, I can't say anything other than remarkable.
1: Uh, I. I love that you brought that up because yeah. that project has probably come up. This is the third I was, time. I was going to say,
0: I'm glad you
2: brought that up because that was how I was going to sidetrack us and say <laughs> that it came up in, uh, in the as, Nature uh, Conservancy. I recall it was episode 25 with the Nature Conservancy. With Michelle, Michelle de, Blasio. de Blasio. I'm pretty sure we talked about it in episode 28 with Russ Finari, yeah. with CWRP. Because they and then fund again it. in episode 54 with uh, Joe Sermelli from Meat Eater. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> that's a project that's come up a lot. And. Um, and that was another one I, until you, you, Fran was bringing up all the places we've seen Princeton Hydro kind of tied in. I was like, oh yeah, that was another one where I saw it. all. I'm like, oh yeah, Princeton Hydro was tied into that too. So, yeah.
0: yeah, it's funny some of the some of the ones that you know that, that pop up. It's you see the design plan and our little logo right here it pops up at the bottom. I'm like, oh, <laughs> we did do that. That's awesome. And there, you know what? There's still a lot of work to be done on the Muskegonetcon, but it's going in the right direction, and, and that's. That'll definitely be the, the one of the top ones in my mind when you know more of those dams come down and we're able to see a lot more of uh, you know occupying habitat from these native species that haven't been there. I know this is a you know a plant podcast, but fish. No, I'd say <laughs> yeah. you
1: know we we love to say it's a plant podcast, but it's really an an ecology podcast at heart. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it's all uh, that, that talks about native plants because realistically, sure, it's sure.
2: the plants are the the thing that kind of ties everything together. But, and we've, we've brought it up too many times to count how we started this podcast was because so many people were interested, had their own interests, but they all were rooted in native plants. If, Mm. If you wanted to be more successful at hunting or fishing, if you had better habitat, Come down to yeah. native plants. That was really, really helpful. If you wanted to see yeah, more butterflies or, oak. or birds or all that kind of stuff, <laughs> you needed native plants to make that successful. So it was really just yeah. to kind of unite a lot of these these groups that had different end goals, but had a common path to to reach those end goals. So,
0: yeah. In my teaching, I was um, one of, one of the big things I tried to push with my students was that everything. Um, well, aside from surface area to volume ratio is the answer to almost all of life's questions. Um, (laughs) Everything is part of a system and every system has lots of little parts to consider. And, you know, a lot of the things that we do for our water resource um, and improvements there involve plants, but it also involves the fish. It's the entire system. And we take it from the watershed. We we like to take, solving problems upstream and doing it in the watershed before it gets to the lake, before it gets to the pond, before it gets to the ocean. Um, But again, it's because each of these parts of which the native plants are very important part are critical to the success of the entire system.
1: You know, before this podcast, it's something that I never said, but I, I think it in problem solving at least once a week is how does it affect the food web? And it's, that's something that I never connected to what I was doing, even though it's such a big part. And since we started this, that's like the one thing that roots me into a lot of my problem solving at this point. <laughs> roots. <laughs> Speaking well, of roots, one of the one of the things that we wanted to did was that your yeah I was, okay. was going to segue too. Right. I didn't want to cut <laughs> you off. Um, we we wanted to really talk about green infrastructure specifically floating wetland islands. Um, so for our listeners that aren't familiar with this, if if we could just give a basic understanding of what a what a floating wetland island is.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, these are the ones that we we use typically, and, and most of them are typically um, large, uh, buoyant, positively buoyant uh, composite fibrous mats, if you will. Okay. Um, I liken them to giant brillo pads, if you want to think of it that way. Um and they are oftentimes drilled with holes, but there's a like they said, a very positive buoyant core. So pl- plugging holes in them isn't going to make them sink. Um, and the holes are where we would put um plants trying to think of the planting material uh, some sort of substrate for the plants to go in and that sits above about three to four feet at minimum above uh, the substrate of the water body so above the sediment in a, a lake or a pond or something um, and as the plants grow the roots will go into the water um, but not just the roots it's the uh, the fibers of the floating mat, that actually form a substrate for a biofilm. So lots of microorganisms taking up space in this giant brillo pad with the plants, and the plants uh, add more surface area. There it is, surface area to volume. Um, in order for the microbes to kind of to take up more residence, uh, these things would actually work. real, they would they would still work pretty well without the plants. However they work even better and a lot prettier when you put the plants on top too. Mm. Um, they do a lot more with the plants on there anyway. Um, but so as they grow, uh, they provide habitat on top of the water. Uh, the roots and the matrix that are at the surface and under the water then provide habitat for these microbes, which then uh, they clean up the water. That, the, the big job is improving water quality by taking up pollutants or what we call nutrients i mean it sounds like a good thing but the nutrients actually are feeding all kinds of stuff in the water which includes harmful algae um and things that will outcompete uh some of the more beneficial um organisms whether it's a green algae or submerged aquatic vegetation some sort of plant that lives in the water too um so these nutrients that are free and available for these out al- for the, the harmful algae are then taken up before they can get to the harmful algae. So things like phosphorus, nitrogen, uh, copper, and zinc are known to be taken up by this uh, ammonia. So some some stuff that really kind of decrease the water quality. Um, and these islands do a really great job of removing that from the water and you know
1: cleaning it up you
0: know, in a in a really natural, relatively natural way. Mm-hmm.
1: In, in the way it should be, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's 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 funny because you know, simplistically for me, like whenever you see an issue where, say, you're having horrible water turbidity or or something, it's something's out of whack, and you need to. What's the natural way of putting it back in place, which which makes sense to me, and like that's on a very simplistic form, and I'm sure there's a lot of chemicals or man made reasons why something or impact just from from local impact that you can't change. Because it's already been impacted, and you're just dealing with what you have now, and how do you get it back to its natural state? Is that a pretty fair assumption? Like a, like a pretty. Yeah. Okay.
0: Oh, yeah. Because well, one of the things that we, we use the Floating Wild Islands to deal with is non point source pollution. And so that's stormwater runoff from anywhere mm-hmm. during a, like a rain event or something. And it's not something you can pinpoint like an outfall pipe, that's a point source. And so Exactly like you're saying, there, it could be any number of sources that are contributing these materials into the water body that are going to be decreasing the quality. And so it, it, this is kind of like a catch-all. It's not going to solve all your problems, but it does a good job of this non, non-point source pollution. If you can't really say, okay, that's where, that's what this exact spot is causing the problem.
1: Yeah. Now, now why couldn't
2: why isn't the shoreline good enough? Why can't you just have the shoreline planted? Why do we have to go and
0: put plants in the middle of the pond or the lake? Uh, that's a great question. So if you put plants along the shoreline, they're just deriving nutrients from the soil. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's also why the islands have to float about three or four feet above the bottom of the, the gotcha, water body, yeah. because if they take root, they're not taking the, the materials out of the water column itself. So that's, that's kind of the important thing. And that was, something when i when i started dealing with this i, I didn't really understand it at first cuz so i was like well you know that'll that'll help anchor it in that's cool but it then the plants aren't mm-hmm. assisting with the the nutrient removal and they do a really good job of taking out gotcha. all different types of nutrients so um yeah
1: i, I now, now this, this isn't that old of a technology am i correct like i 15 years ago i don't remember hearing that much about it I, I um, or maybe it, not, not it, with the industry. So okay. I, I
0: did a little, I, I didn't know a whole lot about this either. Um, again, until I started working with Princeton hydro and doing more green infrastructure work. Um, I think when I was with the refuge, I had heard about them, but I never, we didn't really, um, I didn't really delve into looking into what it was first. uh it wouldn't have solved the problems that we were working on, uh, in our salt marsh, uh, okay. with subsidence and, you know, uh, erosion and all that. Um, good stuff like that. Um, but it turns out there, people have been building floating islands for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Wow. I, 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 right. So there apparently were some, some uh, communities, some cultures in South America and Mexico a very long time ago that tried building their cities on floating islands to stay away from. Yeah. Um, I like, warring neighbors or something like that, you know, um, tribes that are nearby that were not so friendly. Um, But then there were also the other communities were doing this for agriculture. So they were planting some of their vegetation, some of their, some of their, um, their vegetables uh, and plant some of their crops. There you go. That's the word I was looking for Um, on these islands, kind of to protect them from getting eaten by, you know, animals, animals, or, um, but also because they were in the water and they grew really well, that almost like hydroponics. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that carried over, uh, I think, um, I think it was done with, uh, rice in Asia a little bit. And I, I don't know how it compares to current, you know, um, uh, current rice patties. I don't, I don't, I'm really not certain how that works, but I do know that, um, that there is some work funding rice agriculture to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And that actually, believe it or not, ties in with some work that I'm doing with the floating wetland islands. Um, Our our contacts and and, uh, other people in my group have been talking with um, one of the manufacturers of these islands. And there's a lot more research going into um, reducing methane emissions And how much these islands? We don't know exactly how much yet, um, but apparently it's cutting down on methane emissions bubbling out of lakes. Hmm. I have a friend who works for EPA, and I was actually just talking with her last week about this um, before the holiday, and it's it's a considerable amount of methane, and that's that's you know it's a greenhouse gas and one of these things we're very worried about in terms of accumulation in the atmosphere. So the floating wetland islands are not only removing nutrients and improving the water quality, but potentially also helping to mitigate some uh, of our air quality issues as well. Now, again, we don't know exactly how much that's happening yet, but um, it's neat to think that this technology, which in the form that we're using it now started at least with our company in about 2005, Uh, we've been installing them and implementing them since, um, I want to say one of the bigger projects we did early on was 2010, okay. mm-hmm. um, out in the Poconos. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really developing a lot more, a lot quicker now than it had been in the past, for sure. At least in our industry, but historically,
1: they've been around, and we've we've seen like different applications where I know Rutgers Water Resource they were doing programs to teach people how to build. Uh, a floating wetland island, and there was a company at a. It was a doctor in Spain that had come up with. Do you re, Do you remember this, Tom? I don't know. They approached us probably like ten years ago, and it was almost like discs, floating discs that connected together that the plants went in. But they were using it for phytoremediation as sewer treatment, and oh, they were using okay. like cattails. Uh, just because of how quickly they would grow and how quickly they could fight or remediate water quality, mm, okay. and they were just floating these cells that would connect together over top of large, large areas and just letting it – take it up and then harvesting the cattails and dispose – I can't – I think they were incinerating them or something like that to uh, to take, mm. you know, take the contaminants out of the water and, and cleanse sure. it that way. And I know they were doing something on Long Island, and I don't know that it ever – I don't know that the technology ever successfully transitioned from Spain to here, but mm, okay. um, it it was just weird or it was cool seeing all these all at once all these different approaches to what a floating wetland island was and how they could be used. And I, I really didn't know how it's you know, since twenty ten has the has the technology changed? Like has it like what's being used or or the product that you're you're using has it gotten better? Has it morphed?
0: Yes, yes, it okay. has. Um, I think part of part of what's improving is the ability to construct the the islands themselves. The well, now with our supply chain issues and our transportation issues, this may change. But the the ability to carry some really large um, pieces of material and deliver them to a lake has improved quite a bit, but the materials themselves that, that form the matrix of the Island has gotten better. Uh, it doesn't. In, in fact, even within the past couple of years between when I installed a handful of islands up at Greenwood Lake in 29, uh, actually 2020. And then a bunch of islands in Asbury park in this past year, um, they have added an armoring uh, component. I, I think it's just an extra material, an extra coating of a certain polymer that's a lot tougher. But even between that those two periods of time, it helps to extend the longevity of the, each of the islands, the durability of the islands. Because let's be real, you, you got plants there. You're going to have animals trying to nest and, and you know climb on it, bask, birds basking on it. So... They're going to be scratching and, and pushing, and there's turtles living in uh, living in lakes, and they they, they you know they're going to be climbing on, and their claws, um, even the action of wind, bouncing you know these islands, even though they're anchored, they're still going to. If you have a series of islands together, them knocking into each other, that that does um, create stress, mm-hmm. um, and so the materials have changed, therefore. Like I said, increasing their durability over time, which has um, the longer you can keep them intact, the, lo- the more nutrient they're going to take out of the water, the more the better they're going to do for water quality improvement. Um, in addition to that, there's been other technologies that have been incorporated recently that we're seeing. So there's aeration systems that have been added to these islands, um, whether it's like a little uh, water circulating system on top that looks kind of like a like a stream going through it and okay. then it comes off. Uh, or a bubbler system that's attached through the water column underneath of it um, to increase if there's issues with dissolved oxygen below it or something like that. But again, that helps to cure, continue the uh, the mixing of the water. Um, some of this material has been, um, uh, you know, you, you have, you need energy for, the, sorry, I'm going to turn my phone off, that was... Buzzing at me, I apologize no, no, no worries. Um, You need energy for stuff like that You need energy to circulate water To circulate air And the, Typically in the past That meant you would have to have a compressor And um, an energy source with some kind of utility line on the shore Run that out to the island So the island would have to be close enough to the shoreline To make that feasible Or you just have a lot of Utilities running into the, the water body To the island well, and you attach solar to that, and then you have it a little bit more self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. So, and it's also greener energy as well. So there's there's a lot of directions we can go with these. Um, more recently, and I think this also kind of goes along with the um, uh, the methane reductions, um, is adding adding an element of activated charcoal, like you would in a fish tank. So, in wow. addition to the active bio um, matrix, the biofilm and the matrix of the island itself then you have this charcoal filter which um, would increase the uh, adsorption properties, the, the ability to uptake probably even more nutrients than the plants and the biofilms can do um, even making the islands that much more effective um, is that, that, that part is also really cool, again, its elegance is in its simplicity it's just burnt wood this is just yeah. a floating mat of composite. Wow. Wow. <sighs> We're just figuring this out now. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
2: There's a lot more high tech than the one we have in our pond.
1: No, we, we have a small one in our pond, that, but it's a small pond. But we have I, – I know there's geese on it. And I know yeah. there's turtles that you're constantly seeing uh, sun themselves on it. And the plant mm-hmm. material has even changed and evolved over time yeah. mm-hmm. where yeah. some have kind of – had their life cycle and, and others have taken over more. And I, and I want to go into the plants a little more, but I want to push that off a little bit. Just as far as application purposes go, I guess this is a multi-part question. Is is there any project that is too small or too big for a floating wetland island? And some of the different types of applications, is it strictly freshwater? Can it be... Uh, salt water can it be brackish like what 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 are some of the factors going in to determine that hey this body of water is a perfect candidate for a floating wetland island
0: so that's a really good question Uh, i think um knowing there's water quality issues is the first start uh they can be used in a lot of applications there's i mean um you say is there a water body too large or too small um the really that's dependent on the size of the islands and how many islands you want to be able to put in there. Um, The locations for islands, and usually it helps having some sort of cove to protect them. We've been having um, some challenges on one of our sets that we did in Asbury park because there's very little, very little shelter at all. And so some of our anchoring, um, our initial anchoring strategies were not working. And these floating islands were floating everywhere. Um, they're still taking up nutrients, but at the same time, they um, if they're floating all over the place, then they're subject to, again, the stresses of maybe bouncing into the shoreline, the walls, then they become prone to potentially, if they get stuck in one spot and it's a shallow spot, then they'll start growing into that spot, which again, we want them floating in enough water to be able to circulate below them mm-hmm. and take up that those nutrients. So we We've, um, we've learned, and this kind of goes back to your other question, how things change. We've changed how we anchor those Okay. Um, with more sturdy chains. Now, when it comes to freshwater, saltwater, that really is dependent on the types of plants. So there's still nutrients in the water, and the, um, the composite island that we put in there gets colonized by whatever uh, microorganisms, uh, biofilms, that already reside in that water body. Um, and so saltwater microbes will be occupying, uh, an Island in saltwater. Uh, if we wanted to be planting them to again, kind of create additional habitat above the water for things like birds, um, and smaller semi-aquatic organisms like reptiles, turtles and stuff like that. Um, We would need to make sure that those plants were salt-tolerant plants, you know, something native to that particular environment. But again, um, deep enough for water to circulate underneath. Um, And size, I think, just so long as I was at 1% of the water body. Honestly, I'm I, I'm not sure there is an upper limit you don't want to okay. cover the entire water body with islands gotcha so because then you're then you're reducing the amount of sunlight that gets in and be able to help um, any of the plants that are you know any of the native plants growing under the water already um, but that, that's a tough question to answer
1: I, I have a question based on ignorance my own ignorance. <laughs> so and, and aren't, aren't they all based they on are they're are all based on my own <laughs> ignorance uh, <laughs> when it comes to water quality issues fresh water versus salt water i'm not saying that salt water can't be like contaminated or issues but is it really a different range of issues is it like because salt water you're dealing with much larger bodies of water that can handle maybe certain environmental conditions differently just because of its size but like as far as like algae bloom or fish kills or things like that um, or like you've seen ponds completely covered with duckweed or, or something that – I'm assuming not that saltwater doesn't have issues. It's a different set of it. They're, maybe they're not susceptible to certain things, but I know they're getting contaminated, <laughs> so right. I just don't know if it's if it's less – Less pressure on it because it is a, a saline issue, and that in itself takes care of certain things. Or the size of the body of water—I don't know. Uh, that being said,
0: you, you still have smaller areas of salt water when you have something like a like a salt pond.
1: Okay, yeah, um,
0: that has a barrier, barrier islands, creating this. You know, you still have tidal areas. You have you have uh, you know salt marshes and stuff where you there are pans and pools that that form on the tides. Um, so you still have some small water bodies okay. that are saltwater. Um, you do have large, large lakes that are almost like oceans. So, yeah. um, really your range of, your range of issues do tend to stem from very similar things. When you say fish kills, that's often due to low oxygen levels. And that can happen. That definitely can happen in uh, salt saltwater as well as freshwater. Okay. Um, I used to, um, see that a lot in, Oh, well, not a lot, but I, we, the, the issue was talked about, um, in when I was at school in Rhode Island, a friend of mine was dealing with fish kills and, and oxygen levels uh, in a um, tributary to the Narragansett Bay. And so when that turned over, it was, it, when you have um, areas of uh, low mixing over the course of summer, and then you're, you're, when your storms come, and then you have the the, the mixing of the water, you know, that so that tends to create. Um, environments with low dissolved oxygen levels, oxygen is taken up a lot more quickly. And so it's a lot less for the fish. So you have die-offs there, you have fish kills there, you have fish kills in um, freshwater as well for pretty much the same reasons. You also do have nutrients coming in, non-point source pollution coming into salt water. Uh, When it's out in the open ocean, yes, that that is a slightly different story. And you have limiting nutrients. So phosphorus, let's talk, you know, typically... Um, phosphorus is typically considered a limiting nutrient in fresh waters of you know mid-atlantic states um, and that means that the nutrient is in the shortest supply relative to biological demand uh, when it comes to salt water usually it's nitrogen but that, that isn't always necessarily the case depending on the system too um, so um, that's also a consideration as well and again it really depends on the water body, but more often than not with um, phosphorus being a limiting nutrient um, in fresh waters, that's, um, you know, one of the things we tend to focus on when we're looking at um, water quality improvements and trying to understand what it is we should um, implement as as green infrastructure. But the flooding wetland islands do address both. And so we've, I've been having discussions with a friend of mine uh, who is trying to get them in more saline environments, but in order to justify it, he wants to be able to show his um, administrative folks, uh, some of the, the, uh, the financial people to try and understand the, um, the cost per acre of environmental uplift, the best bang for their buck. And he wants to be able to show them the nitrogen removal rates and um, that's a little bit harder to establish like you said in 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 saltwater it is a bigger system oftentimes at least in the at least with the ones that he's working on okay those tend to be harder to to pinpoint the amount of removal rates due just to the islands so it is harder to understand but it is something that that can be taken up by these islands so the nitrogen and the phosphorus it can be used all over the place
1: like i'm sure it it, it has to do with what those bodies of waters have protecting them as well like when you have a yeah. bigger system a bigger saline system you have salt marshes that are filtering and protecting as well you know so i i guess it it, it depends on their defense system mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I guess uh to say and it's it's pretty interesting and it, it made me think to the study that we just talked about a few, I guess it's a couple months ago on the podcast where they were doing studies with plastic, uh, not intake or removal, but in, in salt marshes they were able to dig cores to see like plastic use over the years, <laughs> over the years yeah. and how it's oh, filtered yeah, yeah. out plastic use. And I'm wondering even if that's an application that floating islands will be able to to do at some point. Either if anyone's even looked at that.
0: Oh yeah. I I wonder, I I don't, I don't think it has. Okay. Um, And like I say, even, even just now it's, are are people starting to look at methane reduction because of the islands? Um, And I feel like methane was something that's been talked about for a long time in terms of um, carbon inputs to the atmosphere. I remember when I was a kid, you know, Cows you know, being a major producer of methane, and a hole in the ozone layer and stuff like that. Um, and so it's just now that we're, even though these islands have been, you know, made at least by our the company that we get them from for, um, you know, since 2005, and we're really starting to get a better hold on what kind of impact they're having on methane. So, so I'm not, I'm kind of not surprised that we don't really know a whole lot about what the impact is relative to things like i i guess uh, nanoplastics yeah you know yeah that's that's definitely certainly been a thing especially like you were saying in the salt marshes i know that i've had um, i've seen some studies that were done on the impact of nanoplastics and things like sea cucumbers which process the sediments mm. and you know filter that stuff out but yeah that's that's definitely a thing
2: Wow, now, and that kind of sparked another question for me because I think one of the reasons they're able to look at the the uh, nanoplastic accumulation throughout time is because a lot of these salt marshes are. Um, what's the right way to put it? I'm blanking on the word. Basically, they're, they're getting deeper. They're they're accumulating more peat. They're the the dead plants are then going into that soil layer. I guess is
1: and you have to have it. the age to be able to do that too. Are these depth?
2: Floating islands are they doing that as well, or they just kind of maintain that same footprint? Or is that biofilm or the microbes or the the plants as they die back every year? Are they, is it accumulating mass
0: so to speak, or is it just kind
2: of staying the same?
0: I think so. Um, Certainly not with the microbes. I mean, I don't don't think they're doing a whole lot to increase the mass of the island.
1: Um,
0: I'm my guess is that. Uh, and again, I mostly because I, I haven't had a huge experience with um, the islands directly in terms of the ones that I've installed. The ones that I've installed are, are being put in, you know, they were put in now, they were put in last mm-hmm. year. Yeah. Um, there is a certain amount of material that does go back but stays on the island itself. Yeah. And so future uh, plants are going to be building on top of that. But I don't think it's a significant mm-hmm. – I say that and I – I use the word significant, you know, in academia, I get, you know, I, have my, I know my <laughs> yeah. right um, But and, and then me speculating about how much is, it's, I don't think it's a huge deal in terms of how much is actually accumulating. It does pretty much cover the same footprint. It doesn't expand outward a whole lot. Um, one thing I do know is that we have seen, um, there has a, there is enough material or at least enough space on these islands um, where we've seen trees end up growing on them that we cannot wow. plant there. Um, now, how big the trees are, I don't think they're like you know these you know ones out by the street giant shade trees. But there are some there are some trees on these islands.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool.
0: That's very cool. That
1: yeah, totally. And I guess that gets me to the kind of segue segues me to my next question which i just scribbled down (laughs) was maintenance once these islands are deployed and they're working is there a lot of maintenance to be done does work have to be done on the plant material or upkeep to keep them functioning the way they should be functioning or is it a a lifespan to it
0: that's a really good question okay so so kind of as just in thinking my my answer through from the last question i think there's a there can be enough material on top, therefore, to be able to support something like a tree. Uh, when it comes to maintenance, um, that's really up to whoever is responsible for it. It, it doesn't see it. these are relatively self-sustaining. Okay. Once the plants get established, they can take care of themselves. They grow, they die back, and then they continue to grow. And again, at some point, get sometimes get colonized by other plants that weren't actually intended to be on there but that then that also does bring in the question of um, does the responsible party with a client you know the the person you know whoever got the grant to get the islands in there whoever paid for the islands and is taking care of them do they want them to continue to look pretty and therefore you know make sure that there are flowering plants on the island all the time and if those die back then you replant them that's a maintenance consideration Um, Do you want to continue to maintain them with native plants? So if you do, I mean, they're still still substrate. So invasives and and, um, uh, non-native species are going to want to occupy space that's available. So you're going to find invasives on there from time to time. If you really are concerned about transmission of certain invasive species, there is a certain amount of um, monitoring that needs to be done to say, hey, look, there's invasives, let's remove them. Um, but if you are strictly concerned mostly with nutrient removal, um, then you can plant them, make sure they're planted, make sure that the plant's established, and they go on for 10 or 15 years as far as we know. Um, and I think some of them we've seen up to 20, but I think the 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 generally accepted lifespan of a synthetic floating wetland island uh, like the ones that we produce, uh, is about 10 to 15 years. Okay.
1: I, and I know we want to delve into maintenance. to the plant material, and something you said just sparked something else in me. Like, Because I, I, I think with the floating islands, especially ours, we don't cut it back, and, and it's great habitat, and, and obviously we love native plants, and we love seeing mm-hmm. that those plants are... are creating a great ecosystem and and a good habitat and they're contributing to the food web and other functions too. But is there – I want to talk what plants are used because those plants can live in those environments. But has there been studies done, native and non-natives, that say these plants are the best for nutrient removal? Like native plants are great but if you use this plant, you're actually creating better water quality and I guess that's – that's my that is
0: a good question and that this is one of those ones I I, I don't really have a good answer
1: for. <laughs> okay all right
0: that being said in terms of which plants if there's been studies and which plants are better for nutrient removal that part I'm not hundred percent sure of but uh, the, these these islands can be deployed without plants and they still do a really good job because they provide surface area for the biofilms gotcha I want to say the biofilm can take up to 80% of the removal of the nutrients that the island is capable of even with plants. But I think if there are plants, that percentage can shift. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I, I'm, I, I do know they work without the plants, but which plants do better. It may, it may even depend on, it may depend on the environment and which plants are best suited to that environment.
1: You, you know, because I'm having all kinds of weird thoughts that probably – they may make sense. They may make absolutely no sense at all because we talk about native plants and ecosystems and what um, – and provenance that these plants are well-adapted to these areas because they've evolved mm-hmm. here. I don't know if it's the same for water. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because water technically has living organisms in it as well. So if you were to take – you know, empty a water source and take water from across the the world and put it here. Like, is it is it? Even though it's water and you think water's water, does it make a difference? Yeah, sorry, I I'm out there it, right could,
0: now. But but yeah, I'm starting to wax philosophical. Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <that's, laughs> take that water. If you don't do anything to the water, there is going to be stuff in that water that either um, does better in the new water source than what's already there or it just will die off because it can't deal with the the combination of nutrients um or other compounds that weren't available in its original source it it is it is a habitat and water with nothing you know the strictly h2o molecule Mm. is just another substrate for some of these organisms and so it's just habitat Um, i say that but it's a Way different habitat than, say, living in a tree Um, based on physical properties. And that's something I did my master's on. It was it was it was it was crazy. crazy. Water is
1: crazy cool. (laughs) It's got so much cool stuff going on. Because you think plants evolve with with. The wildlife around it, and I would imagine wetland plants have to also evolve with the water around it, the hydrology and the the soil. The the nutrient
2: load and the mineral contents and all that kind of stuff.
1: And when that changes, it affects everything, and we've talked about this before, just damming Mm -hmm. the Hackensack and the Meadowlands, which were once Atlantic white cedars, everything dies off, becomes Phragmites um, just because the change in the system and how it affects everything. So I'd imagine plant material – somewhat has to be cognizant of that habitat i would right. think no
0: absolutely
1: okay all right sorry yeah, i
0: mean if you put if you put plants in on an island that tolerate the the conditions and so they 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 grow they'll grow year after year but they don't thrive i venture to say that those plants probably wouldn't um, have as an efficient nutrient uptake ability as a plant that is better suited for wetland conditions, yeah. um, which then would probably proliferate, proliferate better, um, and I think that's just strictly um, would be a result of the additional biomass that the more um, the the plants that are better suited for that environment, they're just going to produce more biomass, more root system. Mm-hmm more surface area for this biofilm (laughs) for nutrient removal. The ones that don't do well but still just survive are going to be there, but they're not producing enough. They're not producing as much surface area to be able to take up these nutrients. And that's
2: actually half answered what I was going to ask, and that was we talk about the biofilm and the, the microbes and all that, and the plants are taking up some nutrients. Is it more so that the, the roots are just creating so much more surface area for those biofilms, uh, the biofilm, and that's what's taking up nutrients? Or, or is it a little the bit the of plants both. themselves?
0: Okay. Yeah, well, the, the plants are definitely going to be taking up the nutrients as well. Um, but the fact that they have this root system also does provide that surface area. So that's why, you know, the, the islands can work without the plants, but they really are so much better when they do have the plants um, because they – provide that surface area in addition to removing the nutrients mm-hmm. for the plant, yeah. for the growth of the plants that are there too. Um, and then they also provide that habitat. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just, so, and and prettier. when we're talking about roots
2: on these, the, the plants in these systems, how much more surface area does that create? Uh, I'm imagining something, I guess I've seen uh, videos of what they have in, the Inner Harbor in Baltimore. Some of those floating islands, and how oh, yeah. underneath it's like there's all little fish I'm and like, crabs clinging, and there's just yeah.
0: all this mass I of roots hanging to out. was a couple yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. I, I heard- was in Baltimore a couple weeks ago, That's- and one of the islands does have aeration, which I was really, really kind of taken with. It
1: was cool. I know they were doing some unique things too. I know some of the like at one point they were doing some islands being made from like water bottles that were found in the harbor. I don't know. I that was a little experiment they were doing yeah. at some point. I don't know whatever happened <laughs> with that, but
0: Yeah, I couldn't I can't tell you those, but I'll tell you I think one of the island, one of the sets of islands I just did this past spring, um there had been a floating island made of soda bottles. I think it was like a Boy Scout project or something. Mm-hmm. it really didn't. No. It really wasn't that great. No. Um and uh, those you know, if you have, if you lose the integrity of the bottles, then they just sink and become garbage. Yeah. Okay. Um, with these islands, you have this core material that it's, I'm sure it's some kind of foam, but again, it's encased in this, um, outer sheath of, uh, fibrous composite material, which is then reinforced with this other polymer to, to protect it. And, you know, you punch holes in it, this thing's not going to sink. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, like, we, we started talking about plant material, and I guess the theory behind which plant material to use, and we can get into specifics, but the plant itself isn't in water. The root system is in water, or the root system grows into water, correct? Like, there is a substrate. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a plant that that can sustain Uh, permanent inundation more or less a plant that can take hydrology of like i would imagine like most obligate plants what um obligate wetland indicator status plants would be good in a an island like i'm guessing things like iris versicolor or bulrushes things like that maybe better suit it um is there a hit list of things that you know that you've typically worked with that like these plants thrive well
0: yeah, and some of the, in, in most of the lakes, like I said, a mid-Atlantic region that we've been working in, we have, and, and I'm generally, I'm going to just use the the common names. Okay. Um, you're, like you said, the Blue Flag Iris, we got our bull brush. Um We put sedges in there. It was a common, I have my list over here, a <laughs> <The> common <laughs> hop sedge. Okay. But I do know that we, um, a couple of, the, a couple of the really nice ones that I like on there, Joe pie Weed, and okay. um, mm-hmm. um ooh, Swamp mallow, I think, uh, swamp rose mallow, yeah. Oh, blue cardinal flower, that's a good one, oh, too.
1: Okay, we've
0: you know, some, of these, some of these are really nice. Um, those are the ones that were the some of the feature plants that are in there, Asbury Park Islands. And I think that's generally what we end up having on there as well for some of the other islands I've
1: done, which is interesting. Like, in the high, the the uh, swamp rose mallow, I completely see, um. You know, I was a little surprised with lobelian, Some of the car- like Carrick stricta, I know, is an obligate, but some of these other ones are facultative wet. And it's if if someone were to, to ask me, like, what would you suggest, I probably would have shied away from some of those. So it's nice right. to hear that that they survive well and and thrive in those conditions.
0: Well, and again, because you know, as you were saying, there is some of this material that builds up on top. It also doesn't necessarily need to grow straight down. Oh, that's true. The root system does expand outward in all you know as many directions as it can. Sometimes, not in our, not in this case, but some you know some roots do go up. So I mean, really, it's it's just a matter of um, what what the um, what the roots of the plants do. And so if these plants go more outward, then they're going to be. They're going to have water available, but they don't necessarily need to be inundated all the time.
1: Yeah, And when I think wetland plants, root system, for me, I think of horizontal roots because the roots don't have a need to go deep because they're only going to where the water is. And if there's a water source shallow enough for them to go, I would, like when you're picking up the mat, are the roots – or the island, I should say, are the roots – Horizontal along, like creating a mat underneath the island, or are there plants that are shooting roots straight down?
0: There are some that go down. Okay. There are some that cut across the island as well as it, as it comes out. Um, and to be honest, I I've never really cut into an island, so okay. I don't know if they're through it. But I'm yeah. guessing there are. There, I'm sure there's filamentous roots throughout the island itself. Um, but I also haven't picked up an island. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've seen I've seen you know I've seen other. Images of people doing this where, you know, they have it up and it is across it, – it does take over quite a bit of the, the underside of the island. And, that, and that's a good thing, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean that's – They're also very
0: heavy at that point too. So <laughs> oh, yeah. Is yeah. Really kind of
1: – Yeah. I, I That's a rare thing. I was trying to picture just the the root system encompassed in that, mat, and I was, I was thinking it has to be woven throughout the whole thing. I would imagine at oh, some yeah. point, like we see – when you're growing a plant in a container and you leave it in there that long and you pull it out, there's oh, yeah. a lot more root and a lot less soil than what you started with. Um, yeah. And I would imagine it starts displacing other things and becomes an island in itself almost.
0: Yeah. Somewhat. Um, however, I, I, uh, unlike soil, this, this material isn't going to break down as yeah. easily. Okay. Yeah, so, so I think – I don't think I, – I mean – I think the roots themselves will do something similar, but they will—they'll just permeate more. They'll start extending out into the water more, um, but they're not going to be. I, I know what you're talking about with yeah. like, you know, they start getting root bound and yeah. stuff, and I, I, yeah, it, it's it is going to be a little bit different because um, they're not going to be able to break down the island
1: as much. So you yeah. for and our listeners know you know that it's a good episode. When Tom and I become little kids in our question asking, yeah. <laughs> what if, what about this? Which I actually right. have another one right now. And uh, is that,
2: have have you seen a project where these were so successful where they, there weren't enough nutrients in the water that they had to take them out?
0: You know that I don't, not that I know of, um, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily think that, I mean, I guess it could be the case. But it's rarely the case yeah. when, okay. because you have nutrients coming off the watershed mm-hmm. pretty much yeah. all the time. Yep. Um, if you have a closed system, if you have like a, you, know, you, you still have you still have stormwater runoff. So anytime mm-hmm. you have a, a rain event, you're going to have nutrients coming from the so- the soil around mm-hmm. it. Uh, and a, and a lot of the water bodies actually have a, a certain amount of internal loading, too. so benthic material breaking
1: down is providing nutrient in the water as well. Mm-hmm. So when talking to, you you can see, like you could tell that this is a subject you love, obviously. I do. Um, <laughs> what What kind of sparked that? What led you to taking the career path that you did to get this? like where where did that love come from?
0: I think it's mostly just like being outside. I love being outdoors. I love climbing trees. I love digging in, gr- in the ground. I loved animals. Actually, my my uh, my dream job when I was a kid was being an artist paleontologist because I wanted to dig up dinosaur bones and then draw them. I was like, well, but, but they're <laughs> they're all dead though. So then I went to to trying to be more of a, a zoologist thing, and then okay. I then I realized that they, you know there's a lot more out there, and I think I started intuitively understanding the whole system with lots of parts thing. And so a lot of my studies, I I tried taking courses that took me outside, helped me understand things um, in the natural world around me so that I could better grasp and better, you know, appreciate the stuff that I liked to do on my free time. So that's kind of what took me, at least in the general field of ecology, um, I have a very winding Winding road of how I got here from general terrestrial ecology and being like kind of a birder and a mountain man in college to becoming much more of a marine and fisherman guy. I was working on a, uh, I was working on a fishing boat doing a demersal uh, bottom trawl survey, catching whatever fish we or were in the way of the net as a baseline for a wind farm uh, for a little while. My Um, My graduate degrees had me studying uh, contractile properties of muscle and squid. And then looking at the diets of stingrays in uh, Delaware Bay versus Narragansett Bay. So uh, going then from there to teaching and then the salt marsh restoration. And now Princeton hydro, I was all over the place, but in every step of the way, it was trying to better understand kind of what's happening in the natural world. What, Little tiny differences are going to affect the big picture. And how do we use that knowledge to improve the world we're in today?
1: One one area I would love to do an episode on at some point is wind farming. Just because for us, we're seeing what's happening or it's supposed to happen off the coast of Atlantic City. And I know they just mm-hmm. approved one in Montauk also. Yes. Um, yeah. So is that something that Princeton Hydro gets involved in at least because there has to be impacts – as far as that goes. yeah, there
0: certainly are impacts. Um, and that's something that I want to be able to, that's something I want to take from my background and start contributing more to what Princeton hydro does. Um, and, and as of right now, I don't know of a whole lot of whim farm work that we're doing. Yeah. Um, but it certainly is something that contributes to, um, climate resilience and mm. is something that again, climate resilience is something we're really, um, Coastal resilience, especially, is something we're really um, interested in helping improve and uh, get involved with. Um, The the wind project that I had worked on prior to Princeton Hydro was in Block Island Sound, so not really too far from where they're building the one, or they're they're proposing for Montauk. I I did see uh, some information on that Um, actually when I was in Baltimore and saw the floating islands there in the Inner Harbor. Um, There was a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of discussion about the wind farms along Atlantic City, along Montauk, and and what, what's been done so far in the Block Island Sound um, and some of the stuff there. So that certainly is something that could come into play. And I, I'm, I'm curious to see, there's a lot of emphasis on birds, obviously, because of the, the blaze of the turbine. There's a lot of emphasis on um, fish and benthic species. But I would be curious to see what kind of impact that would have for submerged, aqua- uh, submerged vegetation. Um,
1: All right. That's you know a- you
0: have different stuff out there than you would in lakes and stuff. But you know, totally. if, if there's any kind of impact to various algae and seaweeds and stuff,
1: that's a future episode. Just yeah. calling our name. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> so you, you talked about so many things you enjoy. Is there a favorite part of your job? Is there one specific aspect that you're like, man, this is, yeah, I'm always excited to get up and go out and do this, but I'm extremely excited about this project or this part.
0: I'm always excited to get up and go out to do anything anymore <laughs> after the pandemic. But also, you know, this is uh, the field work isn't something I really get a chance to do a whole lot of anymore these days. But that being said, um, what I do, I do love getting involved with um, fish, any kind of project with fish work because that's kind of where my my background is. Being able to put in these islands has been really awesome um, because they're it, honestly, they're easy to do and the results are really great, uh, whether it is nutrient uptake or so improvement of water quality or just having these, you know, aesthetically uh, these islands improve this, you know, you know, a, a lake um, to have some sort of feature in the middle of the water to be like, Oh, that's really nice. Um, but it, knowing that there is a lot more, um, benefit to the water body than just, um, aesthetic appeal. Um, but you, the fish work is something that I really do enjoy. Um, whether it's, um, doing a survey and understanding better about the, the fish community in an area, um, or doing a, a fish salvage and, and being able to take fish in an area that the construction is happening and, and, uh, being able to put somewhere – put them in another water body nearby th- so that they don't um, encounter negative impacts from any kind of uh, construction that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fixing like an outlet structure on a dam or, or floodgate or something
1: like that. We'll have to do a rooted – discuss. speaking of future episodes, a rooted yeah. discussion on dam removals. Yeah. I think that was – that's something that we keep like flirting with as we we progress through this but we've never really gone in depth on it just the the impacts of dams and the dam removal yeah. so that's oh, yeah
0: especially well, in the plant community you have this whole shift when it when you have uh you know opening up a floodplain to um you know that was once an impoundment behind a dam but then also looking at what's happening downstream after you remove the dam and you have you know potentially greater inundation than you used to i you know that's that's fascinating we,
1: we certainly have folks that can walk you through that all right but, well <laughs> all right we'll do that so we kind of tom i'm sorry no, no
2: i i had i do have one more question but go ahead I'm saving it for my final thoughts. all so. right
1: all right you got it so we we always kind of wrap this up um with the the same question and it's a very simple question that's also very complex for for most people that have ever had to answer <laughs> which is what is your favorite native plant
0: you know, that that was actually a really good one. I had to kind of think of that one for a little bit. Um, it, there, and, and then even to a point, I was like, for some of the plants that I like, you know, I don't really think of plants a whole lot. I, yeah. a, like I said, I'm a fish guy. Um, uh, I was trying to think of some, and I was like, pickerel weed is nice. And then I was thinking of some other stuff. I was like, wait, are those native? More recently, you know, I've been getting into bee balm. Oh, I've been okay. liking... We, we've been putting them in a number of our basin, our bio-infiltration basins, some of our retrofits, um, and they are just such cool-looking flowers, and they smell great. Uh, Minarda didyma,
1: yeah. That? Yeah,
0: that's, yeah. That's one of the Scarlet bee balm is one of the ones I think I ended up uh, incorporating into my yard, and it, and, and it's a pollinator. You know, it's a it's a pollinator habitat, and so it's um, um, I, I really have taken to that recently, and it's, and it's so that it's, that's kind of that would be my go to. That's,
1: that's a great plant, and favorite. it's a little a little bit more deer resistant. I believe that's in the mint family, so it's yeah. uh, which would ex, um, explain the fragrance. But the flower on that, now that you say it, just it, it does kind of look something that could be prehistoric, like the the yeah, flowers like really. A firework. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, totally. It's it's a little bit different. It gives you that different feel. I I say to Tom all the time, he doesn't see it, but that plant smells the, – the scent of that plant reminds me of Fruit Loops cereal. I don't know. I
0: can kind of see that. I, I typically – I typically liken it to some kind of soap. Oh, you but know what? No, I have to. I, I can see. I, I think maybe, maybe it depends on the, the species or if you have a certain cultivar or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, the ones the ones that I have are particularly like uh, a nice soap, not not are overly <laughs> yeah. you know, grandma's you know powder room soap. It's it's a nice you know nice mellow, but still still kind of um, uh, botanical, nice if you will. Gotcha. So we, yeah, I tend to like flowers that are not
1: you know your standard you know petals out like that. I like orchids too. Those are cool. Well, I don't think that anyone had said b-bomb before the pick like we 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 have to create a list but in in 80 update on that is we are creating a list oh okay in the works (laughs) all right i didn't think that uh, would happen i really didn't. yeah no
2: no uh my wife's creating the list she's listening to every episode to to pick everyone's favorite plant and it's going to be organized by who picked it what episode number and how many they? For
1: I, yeah. I, I don't think there's much overlap. I, there, there's no, probably really like in eighty. This is episode eighty-two. Yep. Like there, maybe there's only been like two or three overlap. I'm gonna guess. Oh, wow, which is pretty surprising. Well, I guess not of, if you think of, of how many native really. plants are. Yeah. Right? But yeah. so we we do end the show with we we all take a turn with a final thought, and we we hand it over to you first. And that time can be used you can summarize you can uh plug something you can mention something maybe that you hadn't thought of but we kind of turn the floor over to you and 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 let you take a couple minutes to say whatever you want to say oh
0: well thank you i it's you know what first of all i i will thank you i appreciate you thinking of us uh i'm glad to know that princeton hydro uh is as pervasive in this you know kind of uh field as it is even you know Surprise! It's been so um, through the engineering, the design, the uplift—you know, um, the the green infrastructure is certainly something we're moving to really. We all and we always have advocated for green infrastructure. So thank you for you know helping us to kind of promote that message um, of and thinking about what does that do for the habitat? You know, you know the the, the parts the many, many parts of the bigger system that we want to try to, to, to always keep in our minds um, the watershed and, you know, kind of improving our environment, but also our community for the better. It's not just about being green and hugging a tree, you know, or a fish or whatever. It's about trying to make life better for everyone, not just the plants and the fish and the water and the, you know, the air, but also us too, you know, humans, have a huge impact on the environment but we want to be able to 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 work in harmony with you know our surroundings and that's kind of what i you know my final thought i guess you know
1: and, and that's probably the hardest part and that's a great yeah. <laughs> great great final thought as well for real yeah. you want you like want to go said, want mine is to
2: go? a bit of a question okay and that's we've talked all about floating islands i'm sure people are going to be really interested in floating islands um where are some places people can see floating islands that uh, at <laughs> least in great, our area, I, I that's a great. I mentioned great Baltimore question, Tom. Inner Harbor, uh, right around the oh, National yeah. Aquarium. There's some there. I know. Sure. Um, uh, what's it uh, in Philadelphia on?
1: Oh, the Maritime Museum. Yes, uh, yeah. they oh, we worked yeah. with them a few years ago. You actually went, didn't you? Yeah, the, yeah. Gr- I went for break. the
2: ground, the grand opening, or maybe they're just doing the planting then. But I was there, and the news was there, and I've had done absolutely nothing other than show up with a flat of plants, and they <laughs> wanted to take my picture, but. Um, Yes, yeah, so that was cool.
0: I'm trying to think of some of the other places.
1: But
2: I was water, wondering if you knew other Institute. places.
0: Yeah. What was that? Uh, the Watershed Institute, I think. Um I they may have they may have helped uh over at Rosedale Lake. So there's a there's a number of them in Mercer County. I I'll be honest, I can't remember exactly what, I feel like I should know that one. Um I, I read something about it not that long ago. Um ours are in Asbury Park. We've got uh a handful, I wanna say there are uh, there's six in sunset Lake and on the west side of sunset lake near the outlet to deal mm-hmm. there are six in Wesley lake okay on the eastern side of the heck Street pilgrim pathway bridge I, I mean Wesley lake is pretty open so it's not like you're gonna miss them if you you know go east towards the ocean um, we have uh, I think five of them up in Belcher creek in um, up in West Milford, New Jersey, a mm-hmm. so way up there, if any of you are in North Jersey, I think the, I'm trying to think how best to see those, those, you might have to get into Belcher Creek on a boat, uh, or kayak, something like that. There's access is tricky. Um, maybe camp hope. I'm not sure how available that is to get into either. Um, so those are the ones that I've installed. Um, we have a number in the Poconos uh, that are in the, um, Harvey's. I think Harvey's Lake has some. Um, the Hideout has some. That might actually be our one of our oldest installations. Okay. There's uh, well, that, that's a private lake, sort of. There's not a whole lot of access to that. I want to say in Eat uh, Southampton, New York. Mm-hmm. We okay. have a couple. Oh. Okay. Uh, uh, you know what? I wanna say there's a couple in Fort Pond in Montauk. We didn't do those, but a friend of mine is part of an organization that recently installed mm-hmm. Floating Islands.
1: You know, we in, I'm trying to remember who it was, if it was the North Northport native plant initiative or one of the initiatives up in Long I, Island just got plants from us this spring for floating islands.
0: Okay. It could be. Um I I think Concerned Citizens of Montauk was the that's, group that That's
1: what it was, yeah. That's that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good, good friend of mine uh, is uh, one of, on the, um, I think, I believe she's the director. She's on the executive board. We taught a mm-hmm. coral reef ecology course in St. John. Yeah. Oh, wow. Nice. Fancy. Yeah. <laughs> that was, oh, man. Talk about plants. Man, the mangroves there were amazing. You know, the roots oh, go yeah. up and whatnot. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Well, oh, man, but anyway, there's, hour on that. there's places right. you can see these if you're in our area that, there's a couple that we just listed off. If you're not, we're going to put up – got to find that video Maybe from in, the, the National Aquarium has where they show the underneath and everything, and I'll, we'll put that on our show notes.
1: But, but we've done it uh, also before. Maybe in the, the Facebook group, uh, we can start a post, and everyone can say, like, if you're in different parts of the country where you know there's a floating island that people can go see. So just reference the Facebook group. You no longer have to join. You can just view. It's the Native Plants, Healthy Planet oh, cool. Facebook group. And uh, we'll put some stuff in the show notes as well. I guess I get a final thought too. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, your turn. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I don't have much one other than when we first started the podcast, I thought at some point we would run out of ideas of where to go with or what to talk about. And it's, you know, had we stuck with native plants, maybe we would have, but it, it really turned more to ecology. And, and I think- our our latest pattern is is talking about green infrastructure and it's important and, and we always discuss what we've what we've lost or what we're losing, but you know it's great to focus on what you can reclaim as well. So this is something we've talked about big projects, but if you have um, a water source in your back or in your on your property, like this is something that maybe would work for you. We have a small pond here, we have a floating island I know at our municipal building uh, Maybe something if you're involved in local politics, uh, this is something you can get done to help, and it's it's just another way of looking at how you can help another another way that you can prove help, uh, help water quality, help the food web, help habitat for everyone. So um, keep thinking outside the box, and, and these are technologies. I, I'm sure I'd love to come back and revisit this five years from now just to see what we've learned from the floating yeah. islands set. Now that you have a history and, and some of these become 10 15 20 years old you know like where are we at with methane intake and things like that just mm-hmm. you know it's you need these so you can build the science to continue to evolve and and get better at it and and figure out you know I can't wait to learn what we're going to learn from this what we what we don't know yet so yeah
0: that's yeah I wonder how we can augment it to to improve uh, refugia for for uh, you know, juvenile fish. And if that's going to, if that helps a fishery at all,
1: or, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Completely, completely excited. So, and, and let's, let's see where that takes us. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So
2: that is it. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy listening. Oh, gosh, I got your last name again. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Tom, you can do it. Jack Zpansky. I'll take Z- it. Okay. Yes. Zpanski. Zipansky. So yeah. uh from from Princeton Hydro. For more information, visit www.princetonhydro.com. Thank you everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery.
1: Uh we're gonna give a big thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Man for contributing theme music to the uh the Meet Our Guest podcast. We actually uh, our next rooted discussion will have new theme music. So we we uh we did have someone submit music for, for that and we're gonna have a uh, new rooted discussion music uh at the beginning of the year. So um and so if you're interested in egocentric plastic men, uh, you can stream or buy their music wherever you consume or stream your music. Uh, and if you want to see them live, live music's back. So they're, uh, they they perform a lot in the Manianka area of Philadelphia. So look them up. You can follow us if you want to follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, We haven't had a lot of action on the question and comment line, but I just want to remind you we have that. It's 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. When you call and ask a question or leave a comment, we'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz, and we'll answer it. And if we can't answer it, we'll phone a friend, phone an expert, Um, and the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. We're over 800 members at this point, and the conversations have been fantastic, so – uh, make sure you go, you can vote on this or that for the last episode of the buzz, or just follow along with some of our conversations and we'll keep it going there. Yeah. So you
2: can listen to native plants, healthy planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Um, if you go to our website, there's also a link that you can buy t-shirts, uh, that are all native plant themed and go to support a lot of these organizations that we're having on the podcast, uh, to help them with the work that they're doing. So we aren't making a dime off of it. It's all going to them. Um, But if you're listening and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor. Leave a five-star review. Uh, If you write something, I'll I'll give you a shout-out. But that goes a long, long way in helping us. Um, And if you can, wherever you're listening, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you're consuming your podcast, we should be able to or you should be able to listen to us there. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom.
1: And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Jack, thank you again on such short notice and and giving us so much of your time and and putting up with all of our questions today. It's (laughs) my pleasure. This was
0: fantastic.
1: (laughs) Awesome. So uh, we have a buzz episode coming up next week. So uh, um, keep tuned for that. So they're always fun. And uh, just make sure you tune in. And we'll see everyone next time. Until then, keep it native.